Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. So my local crag, it's called Index. And if you're a climber, you maybe have heard of it. Um, It's become a little bit more popular over the last few decades. But for a long time, it was a really sleepy little spot um, that had a small, very passionate contingent who climbed and put up a lot of new routes. And most of this sort of new route period happened in the 1980s, and there was like this incredible surge of interest from Seattle climbers. People came in, they saw all this wonderful potential. Um, and there was this one particular group of friends who was super active and they put in a lot of effort, which has made Index what it is today. They saw a particular climb, they made it happen. And it seems like they might've just been happy to leave it at that. But there's this funny thing in climbing. A climb doesn't really exist if it doesn't have a name. Like if you do something and you don't name it, it's kind of like it doesn't exist, which is weird because it does exist. But anyway, this first set of ascensionists, they did a bunch of routes and they knew they kind of had to name them, but they weren't really into it. And so they gave their names these wonderful, weird, bizarre, like word soup names, the biology of small appliances, an act of strange bore. They don't mean anything. They aren't inside jokes. They aren't referential. They're just weird. And that personality is always sort of stuck uh, to index as a climbing area. A little weird, irreverent, stealthily tricky. Like, right, if you walk up to a route that's named Thermonuclear Pump Fest Red Alert, you're ready for battle. If you get schooled by a random route called I Am Top A Shader, you're going to remember that experience for a long time, right? So. As people, we name things, and those names have a lot of power. Even the ability to name something is a form of power. Today, a geological feature 
might have multiple names, each established by a new group's arrival and perspective on the landscape. For instance, any clear day, I look out at the giant mountain that anchors the skyline of Seattle, and it could be called Tacoma, or Tahoma, or Rainier. Each wave of newcomers, we've treated naming the same way a new homeowner might move into a new home. You look at the wallpaper in the dining room, and you decide, I've got to do something about that. I've got to cover it up with something that's more my style, that speaks to me. And years later, when a guest comes over and asks what was there before, it can be really hard to remember what we've covered up. That's not ideal. Today, we've got a story about how we name mountains that I think is pretty fascinating, about how names come to be and about how they go away. This story, it makes me hopeful, but the story begins in a difficult place. August 2017, Charlottesville, Virginia, the Unite the Right rally. A lot of us will always remember the photographs of hundreds of middle-aged white men feeling confident enough not to bother with the hoods, spewing white supremacist speech, each holding a tiki torch as they stood shoulder to shoulder around a Confederate monument. A lot of America was watching. A lot of people felt pretty unsettled. I certainly was. So was an insurance agent in San Rafael, California. Producer Phil Corbett brings us a story from their new podcast, The Wind. Phil's contributed to our show through the years. Today, it's with the story of two mountains named after the Confederate president, one in California and one in Nevada, and the insurance agent who decided it was time for a name change and the long and winding road it can take to question the conventions of the past so that we can look towards the future. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Well, I was thinking, you know, there are all these Confederate monuments they want to tear down. And then I thought to thinking, there must be some sort of geographic uh, locations that are named after people from the Confederacy. This is Anthony Ertl. I'm an insurance agent from San Rafael, California. So I went on to the USGS website and I searched for different names, you know, like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And finally, I found two Jeff Davis Peaks. And I thought, well, those would be good because one's in California and one's in Nevada. I sent two proposals, one to rename uh, Jeff Davis Peak in California to Fred B. Peak. And I, the other proposal was to rename Jeff Davis Peak in Nevada to Smalls Peak after Robert Smalls. Fred B. and Robert Smalls were both historical figures that Ertl saw as more fitting of memorial. The Jeff Davis Peak in California had been named by Confederate sympathizers who lived in a nearby mining town. The buildings are long gone, but even when a town disappears, it leaves some trace. And this one mainly left names on the map. The Jefferson Davis Peak in Nevada was actually named after Davis before secession. 
While he was the U.S. Secretary of War, his name was applied to a magnificent snow-capped peak rising from the desert. Years later, George Wheeler, on an army mapping expedition, simply renamed this mountain after himself, as men tended to do at the time. He moved Jeff Davis's name a little bit to the left, to a shorter peak nearby. All of that land is now a part of Great Basin National Park. And today, the postcard image of the park is a striking range, flanked by Wheeler and Jefferson Davis. No longer men, but mountains. Of course, many of these places had names given by indigenous people who lived on and near them for thousands of years. But with English and Spanish names, there was a window between colonization and 1890, where people just walked around naming stuff. Explorers were going out west and naming a peak or a valley or a mountain or a a river. Um, And then perhaps 10 years later, a different group would go out and give the same mountain a different name. This is Jennifer Runyon. I'm the senior researcher for the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. So the U.S. Board on Geographic Names, or the BGN, was established because all of these contradicting names and spellings made maps inconsistent. The Geological Survey was doing topographic mapping, and there was clearly a need for um, standardized geographic names to appear on federal maps. Surprisingly, to me at least, there is a vast bureaucratic network that names places in the U.S. It's important to point out that the BGN does not name cities, highways, or human-made things, but strictly geographic features. In its 130 years of existence, the board has developed many rules and standards. Today, the biggest thing they take into account is called local usage. If people who live there call it that, then that is what it's called. If there's a name in place for decades and decades, and it's on older maps, and we can do some research and find the older maps from the 1800s, that's one of the criteria to approve a name like that. Well, I'm Skip Canfield. I'm chairman of the Nevada Board on Geographic Names, Mm -hmm. and we name places. So that network of bureaucracy is decentralized. Basically, there is the national board, which makes the final call, but every state has some version of a naming committee. Both the Nevada and California state boards meet a few times per year and review applications to name places in their own states. And in 2017, these two applications to rename Jeff and Jefferson Davis Peak began moving their way through the system. Now, contrary to popular assumption, you can no longer name something after a living person, which pretty much rules out naming anything after yourself. If you're honoring a person with a name, they have to have been deceased at least five years. They have to have some association. Uh, We also have a wilderness names policy, which basically prohibits any names in the federal wilderness area 
Um, unless there's really a compelling need to name the place, we'd like to leave wilderness areas untouched. What is the, the reasoning behind that? I'm, I'm assuming it's that by naming a place, you're kind of, you know, stripping it of its wildness. Exactly right. That's the ward's feeling. And yeah, the idea is to leave the land untouched and names all over the map are really another way of, of impacting the landscape. There's a book called Names on the Land by George R. Stewart. It's about the history of naming in the U.S., and after mentioning the BGN being established in 1890, Stewart writes, Historians will recognize an aptness in the year 1890. It is the year conventionally set for the closing of the frontier. The first attempt to regulate names on a national scale marked the ending of another kind of frontier period. To name something is to tame it. Once they go unnamed, they go unseen. That is from a different book called Landmarks by Robert McFarlane. He's actually talking about our vocabulary of improper place nouns, like mountain, peak, crest, base, slope, saddle. But I think it does speak to the reason we name places. McFarlane continues... Language deficit is attention deficit. As we further deplete our ability to name, describe particular aspects of our places, our competence for understanding and imagining possible relationships with non-human nature is correspondingly depleted. An interesting contradiction. To name a place is to exert power over it, but also to name a place is to give it power in the eyes of people. To me, this speaks to the importance of naming a place well, and not just slapping any old name on it. McKinley is out, and Denali is in. It is no longer Mount McKinley. The 20,000-foot peak in Alaska, the tallest spot on the continent, is returning to its old name. Well, here in Alaska, they're claiming victory. President Obama changing the name. Not sure how he can do that. The highest profile case of mountain naming in recent history was fittingly about the highest mountain in America. For centuries, the indigenous Athabascan speakers called the mountain Denali, or the Great One. When Russia occupied Alaska, it was called Bolshaya Gora, or Big Mountain. It was then called Densmore's Peak, after some prospector. And then in 1896, another prospector renamed it for William McKinley. McKinley was a politician from Ohio who was running for president at the time. He won, became the 25th president of the U.S., and then was assassinated in office. His name stuck to the peak for a little over a century, but it was still often called Denali by the people who lived near it. The agenda item uh, to S-155 is a bill to designate uh, a, mount, a mountain, a mountain in the state of Alaska as Denali. It is not a mountain. It is the mountain. This is Republican senator from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski recorded during a committee meeting at the U.S. Senate. We just refer to it as Denali. Citing local usage, Alaska's statewide body changed the mountain to its original name of Denali and requested that the federal government follow suit. That 
was in 1975. For 40 years, Denali was the recognized state name of the mountain, but McKinley was the official federal name. Representatives like Murkowski pushed the federal government to acknowledge the state's decision, but for years were unsuccessful. This is almost entirely attributed to then-Republican Congressman of Ohio, Ralph Regula. President McKinley's hometown was in his district, and he used an unending roll of red tape to block the name change for decades. Eventually, Regula did retire, and when the name was officially changed to Denali in 2015, he was reportedly irate, calling it a political stunt. McKinley had never been to Alaska or seen the mountain. Studying naming, I would categorize three types of place names. One, descriptive names. Places named for what they look like. White Mountain, Pine Lake, Granite Ridge. Two, poetic names. These usually refer to an experience or a story, like Horse Thief Canyon, Massacre Ridge, Eureka. And three, commemorative names. Features that are named after people, and these dominate the map. Thumbing through the names of the tallest mountains in the U.S. <clears throat> Mount Whitney in the Sierra, named after a geologist. Mount Elbert in the Rockies, named after a politician. Mount Mitchell in the Appalachians, named after a professor. And in Alaska, formerly Mount McKinley, named after a president. Mountains seem permanent, and people don't, so we try to use them to skirt mortality. This brings us back to 2017 and Anthony Ertl's proposals to rename Jeff Davis Peak in California and Jefferson Davis Peak in Nevada. Ertl's application in California was moving quickly. This is a little bit in the weeds, but in California, the state board lets the county make the first decision. And then it'll reach the state level, and they elevate it to the federal level. So on November 21st, 2017, Alpine County reviewed the proposal to rename Jeff Davis Peak to Fred B. Peak, and in a bureaucratic flourish, the county rejected it. Instead, the board supplied a different name, Deek Dalgoet. When the Fred B. application arrived, one of the Alpine board members reached out to the nearby Washu tribe to get their opinion. I just kind of took it from there and took it to my great aunt, um, Dinah Pete. She is an elder for my community. Irvin Jim, Hungalauti chairman for the community, and um, we're in Hope Valley by the Blue Lakes parking lot. I met up with Irvin Jim Jr. in Hope Valley. He is the chairman of the Hung Alelti branch of the Washu tribe, 
and he figured the best person to make that kind of decision was an elder named Dinah Pete. So I took it to her and with the picture of the peak itself, and I asked her if she come up with a name for it. And the way it sets the point and then the point over here in that saddle that goes between them, that's what she named it, Deek Dalgoet, and it's that saddle going over between them. And, and so that's the translation? Yeah, the saddle going over. The county board sent their recommendation to the state, and it looked like a done deal. Since they didn't choose his name, Anthony Ertl could have fought the decision, but instead he simply withdrew his application. That's fine with me. Anything's better than Jeff Davis Peak, so if they come up with another name, that's fine by me. The mountain in California looked like a done deal. But the mountain in Nevada, well, we'll get to that one after the break. Stay with us. And support comes from Kuat Racks. They just released the Ibex, an overlanding truck bed rack that handles substantial loads both on and off the grid because being off the grid is dope. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half height configurations. For more details, visit kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this bed rack and all the dope places you go. Jefferson Davis Peak in California had a county-wide hearing just months after the application came in. In Nevada, things were moving more slowly. As the board began the consideration process, a statewide debate broke out. A few newspaper articles mentioned the possibility of a name change, and a flood of Facebook comments, syndicated columns, and letters to the editor began to flow. It's not honoring somebody. It's just at some point in time, there's a historical character. They found a piece of topography on, on the map and wanted to slap a name on it. You know, it happens all the time. This is Thomas Mitchell. He's a North Las Vegas-based columnist who wrote a piece against the name change. Mitchell's column ran in papers across the state and was cited as official opposition in the Nevada board's research. Do you think that changing a name is an act of, you know, erasure? Yes, I do. I think it's just a, it's a futile gesture and trying to say history didn't happen. I mean, it did happen. Learn from it. Don't try to ignore it or erase it. You can erase something, but an erasure is really leads to a correction. You don't just erase something to erase it. Anthony Ertl again? You erase it, and then you add something new where something was there before. So you're taking away one thing, and you're adding something better. I, I think you're still engaging in an Orwellian affair. You're trying to erase history and... Uh, Orwell's uh, purpose or description of uh, in 1984 was that you would try to uh, limit the people's knowledge and ability and language, so, so therefore they wouldn't be able to think any other way than what he wanted the people to think. The public comments that came into the board were split pretty evenly and made similar arguments. Either Jefferson Davis was a traitor and proud racist who should not be memorialized, after all, the state of Nevada was created as a union state to end the Civil War. 
or this is an overreach of political correctness and quoting one of the opposition, are there other names in Nevada that need to be changed? With three question marks. I think we're having this really interesting discussion about, well, who do we honor, who do we valorize, and why do we do that? This is Dr. Robert Greene II. He wrote an article back in 2015 about the South Carolina State House removing the Confederate flag after a racist mass shooting at the Mother Emanuel Church. I think at the end of the day, what we're struggling to figure out is, what does it mean to be an American in 2020? Does it mean simply being okay with these monuments? Or does it mean, well, we should rethink how we see our past? Because if we can do that, then perhaps we can rethink how we can see our present and our future too. All of this is incredibly fascinating, and I think it's going to keep going for years to come. When people say that changing a name or removing a statue is erasing history, what history are they talking about? If people are saying that we can learn from these monuments, then the question becomes, what are, you, what are we learning from them? Are we learning about the tragedy of war, the tragedy of secession, the tragedy of the Confederate cause? Not really. What we're learning about is a, a valorous view of the Southern past that many Southerners, white and black, have disagreed with for decades, if not generations. One of the things about these monuments that I think folks should also understand is that when they were being erected in the 1890s or 1900s, or when the Confederate flags being put up in South Carolina in 1961 at the State House, you had African-Americans speaking out against this. Uh, you had with the monuments, many white Southerners saying, well, is this really my heritage or not? You know, it, it, in other words, these statues do a lot more to glamorize and mythologize the past than they do to actually educate us about the nuances of the past. As the statewide debate settled, the Nevada board met to decide on Ertl's application. Again, they turned his down. And instead, they chose a name from the local Shoshone tribe, Doso Doyabi, which translates to White Mountain. The board approved it, and within a few months, the national board rubber-stamped it. Spring 2019, the name officially changed, and Jefferson Davis's name was removed from the mountain in Nevada. And that was that. To be honest, I kind of forgot about it for the rest of 2019. Until, on a whim, I looked at the BGN website. The peak in Nevada now wore Doso Doyabi, but the peak in California had not yet changed. So I triple-checked, and sure enough, it had been sitting in bureaucratic limbo for about two years. Despite the county's quick action, the California State Committee was holding it up. So I met up with Irvin Jim. I heard from a guy who heard from the board, like kind of <laughs> telephoned. Yeah. Um, and he forwarded me this email that said that, you know, they had been kind of arguing over multiple names. And so the first one, I think, was Frederick B. Peak, which was turned down in favor of Dayak Dalgoet. And then after that, Sentinel Rock was brought up as a possible name as well. Um, do you, like, do you remember any of that process? Were you around for I those? remember seeing those names and, um, and 
when we brought Dayak Dagoet, they they all agreed on it. So when you called me the other day and re, and brought it up, I was I haven't been in contact with them. So I I will be bringing this forward at the next county supervisor meeting. Because as far as I knew that it was going to be Dayak Dagoa, and I was told to look for it on the maps or whatever it was supposed to be. So I, I figured it was a done deal. I didn't know anything about what was happening. The state committee didn't like the Washu name. Quoting from the meeting minutes, This feature has had its present name since 1889. There is a Jeff Davis Creek nearby. There is no local association with proposed name, and it is difficult to pronounce. Initial vote recommended disapproval. The California board found an old map, which had a different name for this mountain in California. Sentinel Rock. Standing guard over... Well, I'm not entirely sure. The state board decided to override the county board and the Washu tribe and instead put forward Sentinel Rock in a later meeting. They didn't reach out to the tribe or Irvin Jim, so I was actually the first person to tell him that the name had been rejected. Anthony Ertl had heard and forwarded me his correspondence with the board. He was trying to work something out with them and said he didn't want to risk it by going on record. As Irvin Jim explained... The mountain has two distinct high points. In the flashier one is a big knob of volcanic rock. But Dinah Pete, the Washu elder, saw this landscape differently. She didn't see the big rock as the most important point of the mountain. She saw and named the whole thing. I asked Irvin Jim about how things were named before colonization. We lost, you know, the name for all of our places. I mean, we had, we had a name for everything that was here. But because of cultural genocide and re-education schools, many of these names or naming conventions never got passed down. When we were little, our elders would talk Washoe, you know, speak. They, you know, they knew it fluently. But when we'd walk into the room, they would stop and... And the reason why they stopped was because they didn't want us to go through the tragedies that they went through for speaking that language. So it kind of ended there. And now we have just a handful of fluent Washoe speakers. And one of the things that was lost because nobody nobody wanted to talk was our name places. Instead of looking backward and reaching towards an historical name, Alpine County wanted the tribe's current input. So by them consulting with us and then giving it that name, that really means a lot. But, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do, you know, no matter what. In the spring of 2020, two and a half years after Ertl's initial application, the state finally decided on a compromise. They would name the full mountain Dayek Dalgoet, but they would name the volcanic plug Sentinel Rock. At their next meeting, the board voted, and in July 2020, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names officially approved the name change.
At the time of publishing, Dayek Dalgoet has replaced Jeff Davis Peak on official maps, on Gaia GPS, on the BGN website, but not yet on Google Maps. You'll remember the California State Board cited a nearby Jeff Davis Creek as a reason to originally not change the name of the mountain. Well, Irvin Jim heard about the creek and sent in an application to change that too. It is currently working its way through the system. On a hot summer day, I step into McCallamy Wilderness in the Sierra Nevada and crest an unnamed ridge. A few minutes later, I'm sitting on Dayek Dagoet. Big white clouds float overhead and the red rocks are covered in orange and green lichen. You can see for a hundred miles in every direction. New name, same mountain. A light breeze scrapes across the saddle and into the pines below. This episode was produced by Phil Corbett with help from Joey Lovato. The story originally aired on Phil's new podcast, The Wind, which they write and record at a handmade desk in the woods. To listen or subscribe, head over to thewind.org. Music today by John Barry, People With Bodies, Ken Christensen, Frederick Chopin, and Brennan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, DirectDiaries.com. This episode was edited by Becca Cahal and Ashley Langholz with audio help from Cordelia Zars. Graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Hold up. 